30,000 students graduate from high school each year in Puerto Rico, but about 3% of them go to college on the U.S. mainland. Kids in every American state and territory leave their home to go to college beyond the borders of their state or territory. But for students in Puerto Rico, there are a number of unique barriers to accessing college, frankly, whether they leave the island or stay. These barriers simply don't exist for any other U.S. state or territory and are a direct result of its colonial relationship with the United States. It's an issue close to my own heart and something that I'm really glad to try to emphasize today in our national debate about college access, along with my guests, longtime college access professionals and current college counselors in Puerto Rico, Celeste Soros Rosselli and DJ Meehan. Welcome to The Crush. Welcome to The Crush. I'm Davin Sweeney, and I'm a college counselor who talks to people who are ready to change the way we do things in an effort to try to level a playing field for all students who want to go to college. People like my guests today, Celeste Soros Rosselli of the Baldwin School of Puerto Rico and DJ Meehan of St. John's School of Puerto Rico. And before we dive in, make sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating if you're able to, if you're willing I would appreciate it. It would be helpful. You can follow me on Twitter, at CrushPod. How are we doing at home, everybody? Uh, hella giant shouts out to my fellow homeschooling parents. Holy cow, man. This is a lot to balance. It's a lot. Uh, the sanity piece is real. And uh, I'll just say that uh, my hair hasn't looked this insane since like freshman year in high school when I tried on purpose to uh, grow it out. And it looked like a crazy 70s Ronald McDonald. And uh, I was just totally justifiably bullied by the older kids on the soccer team uh, into getting it cut. It needed, it just, it, it had to, to happen then it has to happen now and uh, now I, I just have my family to bully me who instead of greeting me each morning with a hug and a kiss it's just uncontrollable laughter so uh, it's only going to get more hilarious until I can either get to a professional or it's all coming off man the buzz cut who knows who can say right as is the case with so much of what is going on in our world these days. Anyways, I'm very excited to get to this one today to get it out, and I'm adding some links to some really important contextual resources here in the show notes that I think add some some critical background and texture to the conversation that I am having here with my guests. So check those out at any point, but definitely check them out. So the idea of Puerto Rico is a complex issue with a lot of moving parts, which are unique and different and apart from what we typically read about here on the mainland, if you're not otherwise dialed into Puerto Rican affairs. There's more at the end of this episode about next steps and things you can do, so make sure to listen all the way through, okay? Uh, so let me set this up a little bit here and remind listeners of my own position on this matter. My wife is from Puerto Rico, and I love her and her family immensely, and I've gotten really connected to this place and its history and its present and its future. And I hope I can encourage you to do the same because it's just fascinating and uh, they need all the help they can get. Uh, so I did sort of a rapid fire history of Puerto Rico in episode 22 when I interviewed Fernanda Samudio Suarez of the Chronicle of Higher Education about her reporting on the University of Puerto Rico's recovery.
recovery after Hurricane Maria. And I will place this episode on pause while you go and listen to that because it's important. It ain't a pretty history, which like, I mean, which one is, right? But just stop right now and do it, okay? It's episode 22, and the key parts run from the 1 minute 40 second mark or so until just past the 10 minute mark. So it's about 10 minutes long. I mean, what the the hell else are you doing right now? Teaching your child first grade reading? (laughs) Yeah, right. I mean, you're already listening to this, so just like go do that. Okay, I'll pause. So, lots has happened since then. The University of Puerto Rico is still in a state of substantial recovery. All 11 campuses were in the final phase of review called Show Cause by the Middle States Association of Colleges and Schools, which is responsible for the school's accreditation. But uh, they pulled the nose up uh, of the plane and retained their accreditation. However, as of February 14th of this year, almost three and a half years after the hurricane, the university system claims to have received only $3.9 million of the $80 million allocated to it by FEMA to uh, build itself back up. The island's recovery has been hard for a million reasons, but not least among them is the fact that there are some bad people that are making it harder. For instance, my favorite bad person in this whole thing, frankly, is uh, a woman named Julia Kelleher, who in 2016, uh, she was hired by the island's then-governor, Ricardo Ricky Rosselló, to run the island's Department of Education. She's a Penn and Stanford-educated professional, right? Everything is great on paper. And then in April of 2019, she was gloriously arrested by the FBI on federal money laundering charges for funneling about $13 million in hurricane recovery money to friends. This is a woman who, as she closed over 400 public schools on the island during her tenure with flimsy or no data to support their closure, said of the situation in the very familiar and super gross paternalistic tone of a white American mainlander, someone had to be the responsible adult in the room. And now she's facing 10 years for conspiracy and 20 years for wire fraud. So she's going to be an adult in a little tiny room with bars on it. (laughs) Anyways, after the response to the hurricane continued to falter and homophobic, misogynistic and just really, really stupid WhatsApp messages from the island's governor, the aforementioned Ricky Rosselló, were leaked it sparked mass protests across the island under the slogan under the slogan, excuse me, Ricky Renuncia or Ricky Resign. And eventually, after a few incredible inspirational weeks of public displays, shutting down highways, general strikes, and all kinds of action by the citizenry of PR, on August 2nd, 2019, he did announce his resignation on Facebook Live. This was and is an enormous deal and should serve as inspiration to people in other parts of our country or our entire country wondering what uh, citizen action can look like when you're dealing with an inept head of state. And then just this year in January, a like 7.0 earthquake hit off the southern coast of Puerto Rico and particularly devastated the towns uh, in the south of Ponce and Guanica. And Guanica is a part of the island where my Rochester colleague Joe Latimer hails from. Shout out. 
A ton of aftershocks continued to rattle the place for weeks afterwards and rattle the people who themselves remain far from recovered after the hurricane, right? And some of you may have seen that another earthquake hit right in the same spot near Ponce. This one, a 5.5 earthquake just over the weekend, and it ruined some historical buildings, no doubt made weaker by the earlier quakes. And uh, I mean, it seems really like Puerto Rico can cannot ever catch a break, right? Now, in terms of the culture, there have been some amazing and great moments, right? In addition to the protests that kicked Ricky out, we had Jennifer Lopez wearing a giant fuzzy Puerto Rican flag at the Super Bowl halftime show, and we had the ascendance of Bad Bunny onto the scene who joined J-Lo on stage at that halftime show, and uh, he's fascinating. He is putting out amazing music, and also doing some pretty revolutionary things to challenge gender norms in a traditionally macho society. So make sure you check out his performance on Jimmy Fallon's show uh, in particular. I will, I'll link to it here where he draws attention to the recent killing of a transgender homeless woman in Puerto Rico named Alexa Negron, which remains uh, an unsolved hate crime. And while he performs, he wears a skirt and earrings as well as a shirt to humanize the victim of this crime. And on the shirt, uh, it it says, it translates to, they killed Alexa, not a man in a skirt. But today, uh, we are going to talk about college access in Puerto Rico with my friends because the issues are unique and different and we think resolvable. Some are huge and systemic, obviously. You know, there isn't a ton that we can do to get FEMA to hurry up and cough up the dough to the University of Puerto Rico, but other issues can change with the support of individuals here on the mainland paying closer attention and shifting some admissions policies a bit. And after we're done with our conversation, don't forget to hang around after this conversation for some next steps as to what kinds of things you can do to help the situation. All right, so let's move on to my talk with Celeste of the Baldwin School and DJ of St. John's School, which we obviously had via Zoom a few weeks ago. Hi. Oh my gosh. You like the background? Oh my gosh. Hello. How are you? Well, um, you couldn't be any safer if you tried from <laughs> the coronavirus because you are apparently in outer space. Yep. And I don't think it can exist out there. No. Uh, no, no virus in space can hear you scream. Wow. So you, I take it, are thoroughly enjoying your Zoom activity. Might as well. Might as well make it fun. For those who can't see what I'm seeing, you appear to be coming to us live from the ship at the very beginning of the original first Star Wars that Princess Leia was uh, abducted from. Yeah, I think it's important for your audience to know that I am a huge, huge nerd, uh, and I'm very proud of it. And half the stuff around my office has to do with with Star Wars. Star Wars in particular. uh, I even have a mug that is a bunch of otters, and it says, The Otters Strike Back. And it's a remake of the poster of The Empire Strikes Back, but it's all tiny little otters as the different characters. Oh, my God. All right. There's DJ. And uh, her background is just about as interesting as mine compared to yours, Celeste. DJ, how are you? 
Yeah, all right. How are you guys? Good. I mean, we were just remarking that Celeste has a fantastic background. Yeah, what is happening? <laughs> you changed the virtual background, and this is the interior of a Rebel Starship. Very nice. Star Wars. That is amazing. So, um, good morning. How is everybody? Good, good. Um, we're enjoying week two of stay at home. Uh, we like to be on the vanguard of things. You know, we started shelter in place before everybody else. Before it was cool. Before it was cool. Yeah. Yeah. So this is what, day 10, day 11? I've lost track. I feel like I'm yeah. it, like putting little like tallies up. But yeah, we're, I'm doing okay. How are, yeah, we're doing okay under the circumstances. Um, supermarkets, uh, pharmacies, gas stations, banks, you know, are still opening and operating. There are rumors, constant rumors that we're going to, like, that martial law is going to kick in at any, at any minute um, and that all of that's going to shut down. But I think those are just rumors, at least so far. Um, the governor hasn't indicated that that's what's going to happen. But, um, but everybody, I think, is also sort of stocking up and bracing you know, for maybe a two or three or four week lockdown when this, you know, when they finally get around to testing folks and, and, and getting a real gauge of, of what's going on. Um, I think that's a real potential that we're all sort of just preparing for. Well, as you guys know, my wife is is from Puerto Rico. And so her family is in Caguas and Guaynabo. And where are you guys located? We're both in San Juan. Okay. Yeah, we're located in San Juan. Okay, gotcha. And I had heard from them, I mean, and I've obviously been paying attention to the news there. I think PR went on, you know, a, a more kind of aggressive lockdown sooner than most U.S. states. Um, mm. And uh, they're trying to lock it down even further, it seems, but running into what is a very common concern for folks in Puerto Rico, which is the federal government. I mean, it's a concern for all of us these days. But one of the things that I heard is that they would walk, they, they, they would like to be able to close the airports, but they can't because that is a federal decision that needs to be made. The FAA did give them permission to limit flights into the airport. So while it's not closed, flights are limited and people coming in now have to adhere to a 14-day quarantine. So the governor is really asking people not to come, not to visit, not to be a tourist right now, come back later yeah and that's one of the concerns is that you know like the week before things finally got locked down the te- you know all i saw was like tourists crawling everywhere everybody was taking advantage of their southwest you know 49 dollar one way to san juan and um and things got yeah just seemed to get a little bit out of control that right before things got locked down so it's understandable and most of the cases that have come that have sort of surfaced have been connected to the tourism so right i mean because where you guys are in san juan obviously is is a extremely busy port for uh cruise ships and yep. that and that was one of the one of the concerns that that, that emerged early on that there was a tourist that had wandered all over san juan after uh, and then and then we learned later had yeah some tourists some panamanian this is made for really great memes who Apparently went to like the salsa on Sunday, went Sunday and like danced all over. Um, and then on a plane went to Miami and then New York and you know, spread his shrimp everywhere. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. There was a the first was an Italian tourist who came off a cruise ship and she unfortunately passed away earlier this week. And then the story that PJ's alluding to is a guy who came in for a salsa festival from Miami and. Lord knows how many people he came in contact with. And the kicker here is that he was, he's a doctor. Yeah. And he danced, he danced the night away. He went to the yeah. festival of Sosa, he went to the Sheridan dancing, and then apparently he went to a private party and just, you know, danced with everybody. He got his 
his sweaty hands <laughs> it's all, all over everybody in San Diego. Yeah. So, right now they're estimating, I think yesterday, because David Begnaud from CBS is like my, my best source of, of news and the most reliable source of news we have down here. God bless him. I don't know. I'm so grateful that he adopted us. Absolutely. And that's David B-E-G. Uh, N-A-U-D, for those who want to follow who is somebody who is really a hero in terms of advocating for Puerto Rico and has been for for years now since his coverage of the hurricane. He works for CBS, I think. Yes, CBS, St. David Begno, as we like to refer to him here. Um, That guy could run for governor, man, and he could win tomorrow. (laughs) And and he deserves it because even, you know, from isolation in his apartment in New York, he, he is our best source of news and continues to be asking questions and kind of pushing the issue, which, you know, again, we, we are super lucky that somebody has just decided to adopt us. Um, yeah. But anyway, his update yesterday was that it's like, um, they, they're, they're guesstimating about 500 cases right around now. Mm-hmm. Um, Officially 51, but yeah, we're definitely, we're definitely like extrapolating um, from the data that, yeah, mm-hmm. that it's definitely spreading pretty quick. So yeah. um, we're just kind of all bracing right for the storm to come sure sure um something unfortunately that you're altogether too familiar with one way or another and it's one of the things that i think it's it's just sort of stunning all the time you know to consider that uh anything that happens in the united states happens worse in puerto rico and uh, you know obviously Puerto Rico is is in an, uh, the line of active hurricanes, and there's a hurricane season that happens, and we, you know, suddenly certainly experienced a pretty massive uh, example of that a couple of years ago in Hurricane Maria. I hosted some family members here for a very extended period of time as a result of that. And hey, lots of places in the United States get hurricanes, but uh, they certainly get a lot more help uh, after the fact than was the case in Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico suffered more than anybody uh, when it came to the the, uh, the economic crisis uh, in, in 2008 and, and the would-be ensuing recovery from that never really happened. You know, one of the things I think it's important to understand, uh, a lens that we place over our conversation today is that if Puerto Rico was a state, it would be the 51st poorest, right? Um, so there's some really substantial concerns when it comes to Puerto Rico that are fundamentally rooted in poverty. But I wanted to ask you guys uh, to help people who are listening here to help us understand a little bit more of the context. So there are a lot of very common questions that I'm sure you guys have gotten um, your entire lives. You know, what is Puerto Rico? Is it a state? Is it, do I have to take my passport? Blah, blah, blah. So how would you guys characterize and what would you use to, you know, how, how would you help introduce people to the concept of Puerto Rico? What is it? My favorite phrase is to say we're foreign in a domestic sense, right? We're a little bit like Hawaii and Alaska that were brought into the United States because of political and geopolitical geopolitical interests. You know, we are located in an area that at some point was really important because you could easily get to Venezuela, Central America, and all these hotspots like Cuba and have like a sort of dominance and presence in, in an area that a lot of European counterparts had frankly abandoned or had not paid attention to. So this sort of Monroe doctrine in my backyard, the United States took advantage of. And unlike, um, I guess, our fellow island of Hawaii, it was much more difficult to root out the local influence of the Spanish heritage, the colonial European heritage, because the language was much more intrinsic here and people could 
have more resources to to fight back you know uh hawaii unfortunately you know the, the way that things were done there we know historically were not appropriate were not right and still aren't here we had the virtue of being 500 years old by the time that the united states came in and we thought when the war uh the spanish-american war was happening that we were going to gain our independence right because that was what was going around especially with cuba they had promised that independence was going to happen and then it didn't suddenly we were a transaction Amer united states won the war and we became part of it and after that war for the last hundred years i mean there's like a long complicated history um of the u.s is sort of exploiting right i mean from the beginning it was sugar right we made domino sugar here in puerto rico right like that that that, that kingdom was created here and there is sort of a long line and that was the governor of puerto rico the first american governor of puerto rico is the founder of domino sugar right so he was invested from the beginning um sort of in exploiting right and limiting sort of the opportunities down here and there's a long history i really recommend um this book by uh nelson dennis he's a puerto rican scholar at harvard um who's written a really great history it's actually really is contentious my mother who's an independent vista is still like i don't think half of that's true um, but I, I really recommend it. It's called The War Against All Puerto Ricans, um, and it just came out last year. He's a great storyteller and historian, um, and using sort of the um, the lens of, of the, the the massacre in Ponce, right, then gives us kind of larger sort of history and context for, for understanding, you know, the last 120-year relationship that we had with the U.S. Um, I'm kind of in a different situation. I'm, I'm sort of a funny hybrid. That's why I, I kind of defer to Celeste. So all things Puerto Rican, I, you know, I while, while I live here and my mother is Puerto Rican and, you know, yo nací Boricón el corazón. You know, I, I grew up in the States with a gringo, you know, a gringo dad um, who had his own issues. <laughs> and my mother, you know, but... um. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a fantastically complicated um, history. It's fascinating. I implore everybody to dive into it to try to understand as much as they can about it. I did a, a, a very sort of brief overview uh, in particular of uh, the University of Puerto Rico in a previous podcast episode that I did with Chronicle reporter Fernanda Samudio Suarez, who had done some reporting on the University of Puerto Rico. People want to go back and listen to that to kind of re-educate themselves a little bit. Um, and then I'll also post a bunch of resources here on the in, in the show show notes when when this goes up but let's back up a little bit and since you introduced the the notion here dj um what are your uh your backgrounds what do you guys do right now and how do you come to be there i am a college counselor at st john's school uh in san juan so we are uh an independent prep school um right sort of in condado uh, right in the heart of, of san juan um who you know historically kind of served um, sort of the most elite Puerto Rican families on the island. So let's just, you know, we share that population. Um, and recently in the last like five, six, seven years also serve a, a, a growing um, population of American families um, who've moved down here for, for a variety of different um, sort of reasons. Uh, I last worked uh, at an independent school in Miami at Ransom Everglades as a college counselor. And then before that, uh, I worked in college admissions. So I was at Connecticut College um, spent about seven years at Carleton College in Minnesota in multicultural affairs um, and admissions. Um, and I had a little a tour out to Portland, Oregon at the college. Um, and prior to all of that, hey, what up? Go Blazers! Um, prior to all of that, I, I worked for the Posse Foundation. 
Um, so I was uh, sort of posse plus the first generation at Vanderbilt University back in the day. And uh, so after after college, went to work for posse and from that sort of segued into college admissions. Awesome. So my name is Celeste Suris and like you mentioned, I was born and raised here. I went to a, a permanently Spanish parochial school because most private schools here tend to have some sort of religious affiliation. Uh, the history behind that we'll get into a little bit later. But I am, am working at the Baldwin School of Puerto Rico, which, like DJ mentioned, is uh, predominantly middle class, upper middle class high school. Uh, we're located between two of the largest cities in the, the metro area, Bayamon and Guaynabo. Half the campus is in one city, half the campus is in another, which makes for an interesting dynamic there. And it's also the first IB school in Puerto Rico. So we follow the International Baccalaureate program, which started around seven years ago. I just have spent one year at the Baldwin School. Before that, I spent four years at NYU as a Senior Assistant Director of Admissions. And before NYU, I was an Assistant College Counselor at another prep school here in Puerto Rico called TASIS, uh, TASIS Dorado, which is a sister school of two European schools, which is now I think in its 16th or 17th year of being founded. And before I ended up in college admissions, I was an attorney, so I had a completely different perspective going into this, and DJ and I were talking about it. Um, I was spurred to make the change of my career with the economic recession in 2008. I wanted to do something different instead of working at a law firm and putting in less hours without seeing an actual contribution to my community. I decided to put my education where my education I think mattered the most, and that was helping students, which I think we all agree we're all in this profession because we love to help students. Agreed. And you hit on uh, a little bit, you know, both of you, the, the, the nature of the populations that you work with uh, at your schools. I wonder if you could uh, give us a sense of, you know, what is this sort of secondary school setting like in Puerto Rico? You know, what are the options for students in Puerto Rico and how might it be different from another U.S. state? Um, well, I mean, given that the public school system with uh, a handful of exceptions is pretty much a disaster. Independent schools are really sort of sort of the go-to um, for most families who have any means. Um, parochial schools are obviously, you know, a big option here on the island um, and available all over the island and tend to be more affordable. So this can probably speak to this. There's also been a lot of scandals um, within the, like the different arch the archdiocese down here and all kinds of, we had all kinds of like scandals even within the parochial system. But regardless, I mean, I think that's that's sort of a, um, a big source for families. And then what there's like, I would say English language independent schools, there's like four major ones, yeah. right? And, and then probably about eight major Spanish language based independent schools on the island, right? Yeah. I think there's a ballpark figure. There's about a dozen of us um, that are, you know, that are providing a pretty comprehensive and I think solid sort of foundation in high school education. And then everything else, honestly, from my perspective, and this could be unfair and so this can chime in, it feels kind of like the Wild West in, in terms of options. Uh, one thing we didn't talk about, you know, just in terms of the introduction is that we're not only coming off of some, you know, some major hurricanes a couple of years ago, but we're also coming off of like some crazy seismic activity, you know, that, that just that started, you know, spontaneously on December 28th. And honestly, I, I stopped checking my earthquake checker, you know, in the thick of all of this. So there's some perk uh, <laughs> of Corona that I'm so distracted by this other disaster that I'm not paying attention to the seismic activity. Right. Um, but that, for example, you know, so schools, basically the public school system was closed 
from December, you know, basically didn't open after the holidays and just like three weeks ago, finally started kick, finally kicked off. And now here we are, you know, everybody's back home and locked in. Um, internet connectivity is not a thing that we can rely on here on the island. Celeste and I met with the Department of Education last spring, the project that we were, you know, we were, we were thinking about. And I remember her, you know, explaining to us that we could absolutely not rely um, on the internet at all to communicate with families or teachers. And that was, you know, spring of last year, the Department of Education is just like, that's not an option. Um, they are talking, you know, because of the earthquake, they kicked in some, some sort of um, online teaching. But again, because of access to, to the internet, I'm, I'm not super confident that that's an option right now for, for a lot of people. Right. And you actually reminded me, there's another great book out there that, that was published, ironically enough, before the uh, this spate of earthquakes, but it is called Aftershocks of Disaster, Puerto Rico, before and after the storm, oh. that storm being Hurricane Maria. And it's written by Jarimar Bonilla and Marisol Lebron. And I certainly mm-hmm. recommend that people uh, read that as well, because this is part of as I mentioned before, Puerto Rico gets it worse than everybody else, and it just seems to keep getting it lately. It's uh, it's it's pretty relentless. And what can you tell me about, you know, because uh, Celeste, you mentioned uh, earlier in sort of giving your overview of the history of Puerto Rico that it was a Spanish colonial, uh, a Spanish colony, right? And that that is the, the, the tradition that that persisted, at least as far as language is concerned, um, and in other ways as well. But what do we know now about the extent to which uh, Puerto Ricans on the island are receiving English language instruction in school? And what's the lay of the land there? So here's where the historical background comes in again. Um, unlike the you know public schools in the United States, our Department of Education happens to be the largest department within the government, but it's very patriarchal, very centered. So the needs of San Juan are treated as the same needs of Utuado, which is a smaller town up in the mountains. This centralization leads to, has led consistently to, to chaos. And the other thing, and this is alluding to what DJ mentioned, uh, where you live and your property taxes don't dictate the public school that you go to. So it's not as if you live in Costco, Connecticut, and you have access to Greenwich High School, which is one of the best high schools all around. Right, you can go to any public school that you enter into, and it doesn't matter um, how much you earn. So, as DJ said, if you have any kind of means, you put your kids in any kind of private school that you can, because the public schools are so severely underserved. Uh, my parents are 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 a product of a combination of parochial schools and public schools. And to hear some of their stories, you know, they're seventy five years old. They were here during that big transition around the nineteen. 50s and 60s, where they brought in a lot of teachers from the United States to help grow the bilingual education system. And there was this us versus them dynamic that arose between the local teachers and the teachers that were brought in to help. And, you know, they they were shunned because, oh, here comes someone who is from the States and they think that they're better than me and we're going to push Spanish over English because we don't want to lose our identity without necessarily understanding that perhaps there is a way to maintain both identities. You know, I consider myself equally uh, American and equally Puerto Rican. It's, you know, a person from Texas and a person from New York doesn't think their identities are any less than because they identify with both. So that created and fostered this us versus them dynamic. And they pushed a lot of English teachers out of the public system and into the private system. So while there is instruction in English, it's not as developed as it should be. And even though people have like a working language of it, it's they're not as lucky as, as I am, right? You hear me speak, I don't have any trace of a discernible accent. 
even though I went to a predominantly Spanish speaking school, my only English class was actually English. My history class had a textbook in English, but was taught in Spanish. My math was in English, but taught in Spanish. So it's curious that the education system is like that. So kids from the high school that I went to, the communities that we work with, the schools that DJ um, alludes to, have this sort of dual dynamic instruction. But the public schools, unfortunately, somehow have to divide and choose what their personality is going to be and where their strengths are going to lie. So unfortunately, a lot of these public school kids are very much underserved and very much put aside. Yeah, I mean, I would argue, obviously this is not a universal and there are plenty of, I'm sure there are kids coming out of the public school system that are bilingual, um, but that is not the norm. Our kids are not graduating from the public school system prepared to operate in a bilingual economy. Like that's not what the school system is designed mm -hmm. to do. They're not getting set up to do that. And that's the tragedy. When I think about my families, particularly my Puerto Rican families, they know, I mean, all of my students, even if they're, you know, from, from a full Puerto are absolutely bilingual. They're fully bilingual. They haven't lost their love of the Spanish language. They haven't lost their fluency or appreciation of the Spanish language, um, but they've mastered English because their families know <laughs> that their success, whether that's going to school in the States or being a leader here on the island or, you know, is, is connected to, to that fluency. And so I appreciate like the history and like why, you know, in the fifties and sixties there was such a pushback to bilingual education. I mean, the, the, the the desire to preserve our patrimonio, right, and our connection to that language and to that history, like, I totally get it. Like, it's a colonial pushback, like, fuck you, we don't need to learn English, right? But it's 20, like, 20 now, um, and I feel like it's a different reality. And, and again, when I see what elite families have been doing now for generations, even if they're going to the Spanish language and independent school, those kids are coming out fully bilingual, right? That is not true for the rest of the kids on this island. Um, and so if that means getting a job at a hotel, I mean, just any kind of upward mobility, economically is going to be connected to that. And the public school system is, is, is clearly failing at that. I mean, same conversation we had with the Department of Education last year. I was kind of flabbergasted. We were going to put together, you know, like a little, um, you know, sort of bullet point, like a little release on what we, the project we were working on. Um, and the Department of Education is like, you really need to translate that because our teachers aren't going to be able to make sense of that. And so that, you know, if, if the teachers are not bilingual, right, we're also just, this is a generational sort of issue that, that we're sort of trapped in. Um, right. And I bring this up, obviously, because we're going to talk, I'm going to pivot in a second to talking specifically about barriers to accessing colleges on the mainland. This is a this is a big one. And before we, we get to that point, I think that, you know, you, we, we talk, I mean, about the, the, the lack of English language instruction in schools and that being a, that, that being a potential challenge, either by choice or not. But what about college counseling? So that was interesting with that meeting that we had with the Department of Education. So we were trying to set up a, a Camp College to sort of put university representatives in front of underserved populations, particularly the students in, in public schools. So this and, is something that often happens as a function of the, the you know state or regional level associations of college admissions counseling, right? The New York State ACAC, where I am, does their own camp college to bring students that don't traditionally have access to these resources together to get them with college representatives and, uh, and, and, and give them a, a substantial, significant push forward in the college planning process. Mm -hmm. And in that meeting, you know, we were telling them all these resources that we had, the people that were coming in to help out from different colleges, you know, a really cool cross section. And we said, hey, hey, can you help us get, help them get in touch with the people from, you know, different high school here so that they can go and visit or host a college fair, you know, uh, we both worked on the college side, we can help you set up a college fair. And 
instruct your counselors because these counselors have to be highly trained. They have to pass boards. They have to have master's degrees. You know, they have to be highly trained to be uh, social, emotional, or career counselors there. And she said, oh, no, they got it. They don't need any help. They know everything about college admissions. And colleges visit us all the time. And I had just come off working from a top-tier institution. And I had never been able to contact anyone in a single public school on the on the metro area. So we're talking about like a 40-mile radius that would be open to having a school visit or, or even knew what the heck I was talking about, right? And so it was really, I don't know, awful to hear that, although no, we've got it, we don't, we've got, we don't need your help. We've got it squared away when we know specifically that, that they don't got it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the assistant college counselor in my office is a product of the public school system here in Puerto Rico. He was an English teacher and he has his master's in school administration. And Orlando was also uh, an English teacher in the public school system. So he's, he's seen it from both particular sides and this year he talks a lot about how what he's seeing was not something that was brought into his situation as both a student or a teacher. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're not getting the resources and I know people are offering them and, and I, we don't understand the disconnect between people trying to help and this sort of hesitancy, right? I, I'm gonna give them the charitable assumption that they just perhaps they don't know or don't understand what it is that we're trying to do and so there's a bit of a hesitancy to to let us help. One of the other uh, factors that I want to make sure that we talk about in, in this, in the accessing college question is La Yupi, the University of Puerto Rico, right? And this is uh, a network of 11 campuses across the island. This is where my wife got her undergraduate degree. And this is where the overwhelming majority, like not even close, of Puerto Ricans who go to college go to La Yupi. Do you think that... Um, that contributes to perhaps what you were just describing in that college counselor, that there's this kind of an assumption that if a kid's going to go to college, they're going to go there. And so, you know, why necessarily work to educate them about other options elsewhere? Yeah, no, I, th- I think that's a big piece of it, right? Is that this, yeah. I mean, granted, I mean, if we go back historically, St. John's and Baldwin has been sending, you know, elite kids to, to the school in the States <laughs> since, you know, since the beginning of time. Um, and yeah, sure, that's an attitude of the public system, you know, that there, there's no need to provide college, sort of any sort of college counseling for kids thinking about something outside of the UP, right? Legitimately, too. I mean, I think, I, I think there's also a sense, and this is just, you know, just sort of processing people's feelings and, and sort of everything this island has gone through in the last, like, 20, 30 years. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's also a sense of, you know, as, as much as, and you know more about the UP, I'm curious. I mean, I need to go back and check out this history of, of the UP that you put together. Um, but I get the sense that, you know, like, there's fear of brain drain, too. <laughs> like, we don't want to encourage the best kids in the public system to be thinking, you know. Um, and then the fear that once you leave, you're not going to come back, right? And we don't yeah. want our most talented kids who might have gone to Mayagüez or gone to Rio Piedras, you know, to go to MIT because then, you know, maybe maybe they don't come home, you know? There's another great article by Jarimar Bonilla, who's an anthropologist at Rutgers who wrote the book Aftershocks or, you know, contributed to the book Aftershocks, The Disaster that I mentioned before, um, that she published along with some colleagues uh, in the wake of Hurricane Maria talking about ways that American colleges could constructively support uh, students and academics that were displaced by the hurricane in ways that would not contribute to brain drain because colleges everywhere were giving, uh, you know, their uh, students in Puerto Rico, you know, making it much, much easier for them to access uh, colleges in the United States. 
than ever before in the wake of the hurricane, but realizing that they were sapping some really valuable resources away from a, an embattled uh, system that needed those students and an embattled island and economy that needed those students. And it's a real concern, right? Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you guys have any additional thoughts about this notion of brain drain that you bring up. Like, is is are we worried that if, you know, let's say that our mission is successful and that we get a whole bunch more uh, American colleges and universities to pay attention to Puerto Rico and to enroll most more students from the island, are we contributing to uh, what may inevitably be a removal of talent from the island to never to return? I think yes and no, right? I think there are going to be people that always come back. I mean, look at DJ's case. Okay, was raised mostly in Florida and she came back. And I spent four years in New York and I came back. So as long as there is an openness to have people come back, to say, come back to the community, help, as long as that invitation's there, I think people will, right? We're also a very family-centric community. When you see these huge spots of people living in Orlando, it's because someone has a cousin that moved there, so I'm moving with my cousin and with my family. So it's a very familial uh, kind of, uh, not migration, because it's we're not immigrants, uh, but it, it's it's that sense, right? Uh, we've seen it with other communities. We, we saw it with uh, the African-American community moving all to the West, because that's where the opportunities were. We see it with enclaves of Indian families and uh, Italian-American families, Asian families. Like They tend to move where their communities are. But I think if there's that invitation, that openness, and we do away with this stupid divisiveness of, you know, you know English and you went to the college in the States, and so you're not welcome here. If we can do away with that, more people will come back um, with, with the university here. It's a great institution. It really is. But it is also suffering from its inability to want to necessarily change with the times. You know, it needs to get into the 21st century, especially when it comes to college recruiting and supporting students. There are 11 uh, campuses across the island, but they might as well be recruiting like 200 different universities instead of one voice, one place to go to. And then like the SUNY or CUNY systems in, in New York, where most I think your, your population is coming from, you know where to go to. And you don't get uh, the 11 representatives of one place to talk about the exact same thing, right? I think the UPR can do a really good job, but I think they also openness to how to recruit and how to talk to to students now because students are much more savvy Mm -hmm. about the college going process than they, I think, maybe give them credit to and that we maybe give them credit for. Yeah. I'd argue, I mean, the calculus is is not one or the other, right? It's both. Mm -hmm. You know, we have incredibly talented kids who should be taking advantage of opportunities in the state. I mean, look at any revolutionary in history, they left and they came home. I mean, that is sort of the history, right, of that kind of leadership. And so, you know, that absolutely, I think we need to open up more opportunities for kids. But I mean, the the, the mission of a state system, right, the reason why state institutions sort of grew all over the, the country in the 20th century was to serve the local needs of the community and the problems that we have on this island. If we continue to underfund, the people that are thinking about local problems, right? No, I'm a progresar. So I do, you know, like, I don't think it's one or the other. Um, you know, I also, I mean, this is, this is me talking shit out of my ass, like not knowing, you know, very little, but I, have you, I mean, have you been to the Rio Piedras campus, Gavin? It is beautiful. Like if that campus was like, you know, at, you know, looking as sexy as it could be, because it is gorgeous. 
it could make Pomona like look like shit. I mean, it is. A, it could be the most beautiful campus in the country. UPR could be attracting, right, with the talent that it has. Kids from the diaspora, right, that grew up New Yorkans in New York. Kids, you know, like from all over the country. Like I went to University of Hawaii for a summer. That was an incredible experience, right, and an amazing campus. And incredible, like, like UPR could be attracting talent down right. here, right. you know, and helping and bringing talent down here to help, you know, solve problems. So. No, it's not one thing or the other. I think I think it, you know, it isn't such a it is such a clusterfuck. <laughs> it's an incredibly affordable out-of-state option for for students to come and study here. Right. And it is a place where the best and the brightest recruit here. DJ talked about Mayagüez. It's on the western part of the island. It's one of the largest municipalities, and that campus is known for its engineering and, and STEM programs. NASA recruits there. IBM recruits there. AT and T recruits there. I mean. They pick the best and the brightest from that campus consistently every year. You've got somebody that did their uh, bachelor's, master's, or doctorate from the UPR Mayagüez working in the highest echelons of the tech industry mm -hmm. and of the business industry because it is giving you a good education, but it's undersold or suffers from this, uh, you know, redheaded stepchild dilemma whoa, whoa, whoa. of, hey, I'm a redhead too. So right, I, right. I, okay. I, subscribe myself to that of uh, <laughs> feeling less than when it's not less than you could like dj said bring those kids from all kinds of new yorican mexican guatemala backgrounds that have uh, a good dump you know good control and, and knowledge of, of spanish and be at a hispanically serving institution feel supported feel like they are not the token diversity but part of that community in the diversity and bringing actually a kind of you know a little different flavor to it uh, yeah. what we have here and learning and constructing from each other. You know, we it has robust study away programs in Spain, in France, in Mexico. Right. So it is actually a good option for students, but it's also undervalued. And uh, as of not long ago, still in need of a, about a hundred million dollars in repairs, and have not received the uh, the the funds that are meant to be dispersed by the federal government to make those repairs. So um, even if it wanted to help itself in that way, uh, it continues to be hamstrung by uh, world class shitty treatment um, from its uh, colonial uh, overlords. So, anyways, I want to pivot now, talking about uh, a couple of other ways that it might be, because I think what we're talking about here is at least least create the option, at least make it possible as equal as everybody else to access colleges anywhere else in the country. Um, it just currently is not that way. So just sets a stage, um, according to an article that came out in the Hessian Report, which is one of the best, I think, kind of encapsulations of the problems that exist in terms of accessing mainland colleges. Uh, in 2016, 694 students went to college on the mainland out of a population of 3.2 million. So and in 2018, after the hurricane, after a lot of people left, uh, the number jumped, skyrocketed to 978. That's it, right? So an incredibly small proportion of students. Uh, they, the article also says that 51% of students in Puerto Rico go to college, period, uh, compared to over 67% of suburban uh, students on the mainland and 63% of urban and rural students on the mainland. So college access anywhere, whether it's local or, 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 or national is a problem, but particularly national is the kind of thing that I want to focus on. One of the things that I, I want to make sure that we talk about is the fact that there are a lot of students that really don't have uh, any idea that they even need to take uh, uh, the SAT or the ACT in order to access colleges on the mainland. Instead, they have another 
option that I think most students are familiar with, and it is a very, very strange and unique anomaly that exists in the landscape of admissions testing that nobody knows about except Puerto Rican people. Uh, what is that? Uh, DJ, why don't you introduce it? And then I know that, uh, Celeste, you've got uh, a lot to t to, uh, of knowledge in dealing with this specifically in your time at NYU. It is, uh, the test is colloquially known as El College Board, um, is, but it is also, it's called the PAA. Prueba, ¿cómo es? Eh, prueba académica. Prueba académica avanzada. Academic aptitude test. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And essentially, uh, it's three sections. This is a tool made by the College Board Latin America. Uh, College Board Latin America has their headquarters here in San Juan. They have sort of an interesting history. Um, from what I can gather, um, this tool and sort of the existence of the College Board Latin America was sort of born out of, at least the College Board story, is some altruistic desire to help um, Latin America uh, sort of standardize their, their admissions process. Um, and so Puerto Rico was sort of like the, the experiment. Um, and the University of Puerto Rico, you know, sort of devised this tool. It's got three sections scaled on 800, like the SAT, uh, an English section, a math section, and a, and a Spanish section. So it's got three instead of two sections. Um, the test is administrated universally in the public school system to all to all students. For free. I don't what the size of that contract looks like <laughs> um, and who's in bed with that contract, but um, it's a pretty hefty contract and. Is underserved um, as our students are. They, they, all of the schools and uh, all the students in the public school system take that, and that's the the, the um, standardized test uh, that is used for admission both to the UP, to the to the public schools uh, higher educational system, as well as to all the independent um, university and college options on the island. And um, it is universally accepted. Uh, obviously, they're on the island, but um, definitely not the case when it comes to American colleges and universities. Correct, Celeste? Right, uh, because as DJ mentioned, the, we call it the College Board because it's made by the College Board United States. So this is like David Coleman's subsidiary baby here in Puerto Rico, and it's administered in the Dominican Republic and all of Central America, and it's used for admissions in some of their own universities as well, in addition to whatever exit and entrance exams that they might have for, for their university. So like Mexico has the Ceneval, so they, students could also use this if they wanted. Um, a couple of years ago, a man that I ultimately respect in this field very, very much, Mario Silva Rosa, who works at Bentley University, was one of the first to come up and understand what this test was and pushed for this exam to be used for admissions at admission, at, Assumption College, where he used to work. And he said, I understand that this test tests exactly what the SAT is looking for. It's got a math section, it's got an English section, and bonus, it's got a Spanish section. So if your students are taking this test already, because in the public school system, it's administered to them for free, and the students in the private school system also take it to apply to university here, because this was before local colleges started to take the SAT as well, uh, he's got, I've got two points of contact that a student could use to apply to college. Uh, send them over to me, right? Because this is a test that will cover the material that I need for me to make those academic decisions that I need to, another point of information or, or data to, to use and rely to. And he said, slowly but surely it was being added if the student had an SAT score, they could send that as well. So it's a lot like other universities who were beginning to accept the A-levels from the UK 
or like the CAPE exam, the, the Caribbean um, Advanced Proficiency exam, which is this, uh, the offshoot of the UK A-levels for those British um, colonies that made their own exam. That if I can use these point, two points of contact, then I can open a student's possibility of admission while still pertaining that academic strength, right? I wouldn't be lowering my academic bar for, for a student to be admitted here. And then other universities started to get attention to it. It comes to the brain of the folks at NYU, particularly Billy Sitchell, who was the representative recruiting for Puerto Rico at the time. Um, and also comes to the hands of its former Dean of Admissions, Sean Abbott, who's now Vice President of Enrollment at Temple. And at NYU, they had this wonderful person who was my boss, and so also biased because she's great. Her name is Bobby Fernando. Bobby comes from the UK and looks at all these different admissions from different parts of the world. And she says, instead of recalibrating and recalculating what the A-levels are, what the CAPE is, what the Zimbabwe uh, senior certificate is, or what the Gaokao in China is, let's learn it. Let's understand it. Let's become savvy. Uh, international education matters and admit students because we know that this exam is hard enough for them to get into their own colleges and their own countries and it can fit ours as well so she and her team you know all of these people start to evelyn thimba as well they start to do this very in-depth study uh claire wilkin wilkins comes along and she also helps bobby with this process and we create this entirely huge study of over 200 academic ladders across the world. And we start deciding which tests uh, can be used for a test flexible policy instead of test option. And in Puerto Rico specifically, they look at how rigorous the exam is and what students have to go through to learn it and they open it up. So students at NYU could now apply to their program using the PAA, the, the College Board de Puerto Rico. And it's been used for about seven years now. And just like Mario Silva-Rosa and Assumption and now Bentley where he currently works and Temple where Sean Abbott and Claire Wilkins now work, have seen an increase in students applying, uh, an increase in access and that same, and if not an even larger academic success and academic consistency. They're admitting strong students with good grades and students that are thriving at their campuses because they decided to open it up and understand an educational ladder instead of creating a barrier because you, not everyone can can take all these tests a, across the world right. and this was that was readily available so why not study it and use it to your knowledge uh, either of you is there a place where if you're a student in puerto rico and you're not taking the sat or the act for uh, any number of of extremely valid reasons that are beyond your control and you're taking the paa because it's administered for free and everybody takes it is there a place where you can go and look um and see okay what colleges can i apply to because they have a a, a, a paa positive policy no, that's yeah. a great idea. That's a brilliant idea. No, that's, you that's have to create that list. Okay. Yeah, that's a great idea. We'll do it. Um, yeah. So you would arguably like what recommendations would you make Celeste to uh, colleges and universities that are, you know, maybe there's a representative listening to this and wondering, I, why don't we accept a PAA? Like what, what would you recommend that they do um, in order to, you know, begin to uh, perhaps accept this in lieu of an SAT or an ACT? I think that they should start talking to their counterparts in, in higher education, right? If this test is good enough for the four colleges that I mentioned, New York University, Temple University, Assumption University, and Bentley, 
then you're looking at a cross section of colleges that are and the University of Rochester shout out and the University of Rochester right uh you and Joe Latimer uh take this test seriously you took the time to understand it you can talk to those people you can talk to Bobby Fernando Billy Sitchell Sean Abbott Claire Wilkins Mario Silva Rosa you can also talk to me because I been on both sides of the aisle and we can share the information of what our institutions were doing yeah. to understand it and to implement it and there are great folks also at the uh, local office here that that would be open to having conversations with colleges because it's also in their best interest for this exam to to get out there right we don't think of it as a replacement for the other forms of standardized testing but we have to think back to when it was sat versus act and now we have a conversation of sat or ACT, it cannot be a conversation of right. SAT or ACT or PAA or A levels or Gaokao or French uh, baccalaureate, you know, mm -hmm, or IB. But there is another quick wrench in all of this, which I just was only recently reminded about a couple of mm -hmm. weeks ago because it just it came up um, in the calendar. Um, so the College Board of Latin America not only has this tool, the PAA, they also have something called the PNA, Puerto de Nivel Avanzado, which and the, the scam and the hustle, right? So this is a test that seniors take on their way out of high school. Um, there's three of them, English, math, and Spanish, kind of like the PAA. Um, they're two hours oh, long. There's the calculus too. And yeah, and there's, well, there's two math, right? There's a pre-calculus and a calculus. So you pick one or the other. Um, and that gives you credit at La UPI or at Sagrado or La Inter for three to six, depending on how you perform, three to six sort of credits. It's basically the College Board of Latin America's AP exam, mm -hmm. right? Um, and they're 55 bucks a piece, and you have to sign up for them in April before you've decided where you're going to college. So if you're a high-achieving, low-need kid on this island who's, you know, waiting to see if you get money from Harvard or whatever, that, you know, like you're, you're waiting to see what, what your options are in the States, you've got to pay $165 before you make that decision to sign up for a test, for three tests that are, that are going to be totally worthless to you if you decide to go to the States. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and another tool where I'm like, well, can schools in the States, you know, can we reevaluate this P this PNA or, you know, that kids are spending money on because they don't know what the, they don't know what the future is going to bring. Right. Um, can they get credit, you know, for their English or their math? Can they get the equivalent of AP credit? Yeah. Because right? if we're going to give credits for people that the college board is using and the colleges here are validating, you know, as worth AP credit, it really is kind the of. UPR gives credit for AP exams. And I think if colleges are going to give credit for IB exams getting, you know, five, sixes, and sevens, this is another test that is, you know, nationally accredited, as rigorous as it can be, and it can help a student place out of or advance to the next level. I mean, it's covering Spanish, grammar, and literature, just like the AP Lang and Lit. English is doing the same thing as AP Lang and Lit. And you've got two versions of mathematics, mm -hmm. a mathematics that goes up to uh trigonometry and like college algebra and then a pre-calculus calculus version mm -hmm. so an engineer can take the pre-calculus test score again one through five just like the ap sports and get college credit or even advance to the next level it's, it's banana devon the kids my high achieving high need, like a kid to have a, like a comprehensive testing portfolio on the island they need to have an sat an act a paa pnas and ap's like nobody else in the fucking country needs to have all those tests right. to yeah. be in good shape to have all their bases covered for the admission. We're test. running them ragged with all of them. I, mean, again, these are I have to advise them to take everything and give college board money out of each direction 
just in case. Yeah. Um, and that's just absurd and infuriating and, and criminal given, you know, given the circumstances that most of our families are right. in. So in addition to these voluminous uh, testing barriers that you guys bring up, what are some recommendations that you would give college admissions reps who maybe want to do some more extensive or uh, any <laughs> uh, recruiting on the island? Uh, because obviously you guys represent populations of students that are probably, you know, full pay. They're the, you know, the kinds of students that are going to be prepared, that are going to take all of those tests, they are going to have the money to take all those tests, the knowledge, the guidance, all that stuff to be able to attend college. So they're going to come and visit your schools. Celeste, you talked earlier about the fact that it was difficult for you to uh, recruit at the public schools because you couldn't get a, a hold of anybody. You know, what, what would be some recommendations that either of you would have uh, for the college side folks that are like, well, I really want to recruit more extensively and get into some students that that, that have a, maybe a higher degree of need and and, and uh, be able to access my college or university, but I'm having a hard time figuring out how best to do it. So I would say let's start small, right? There are counselors here that can help you and direct you to schools where you can start. So uh, we've got Marie Rosa at the University of Puerto Rico High School, which is attached to the university, and she's a great counselor. And she gets some visits, but, but not a lot. And I say, go visit Maritosa. She's, she's incredible. Get in front of her kids. And if you start getting in front of her kids, it'll open it up to University Gardens, which is also a great high school. And then you've got uh, Simitech, which is uh, the STEM school in San Juan. That's another school. Start small, start with those schools and start getting the word out there. There are places where if you also start talking to community leaders that we can kind of connect you to, uh, recruitment, we, we know can't be done overnight and it's not going to be dramatic. But if you open up to visiting Baldwin and visiting St. John's and visiting Perpetuo Socorro and visiting Colegio San Ignacio, which are four great schools, take one moment to try and connect with one of those public schools that we just mentioned and maybe they'll open it up to another way. Maybe UHS, University High School, will talk to another school and they can host them at their school so that you can meet them right if they're um, scheduling a visit with you would you be able to put them in touch with people yeah and we do we share the emails we share the the phone numbers in the past year since dj and i uh got the band back together uh we've been telling everybody to go visit these places well and Marie rosa i mean and this is something right that i think we need to be thinking about is like how to create you know like Marie rosa university high school is a high school connected to the university of puerto rico Rio Piedras. so it's a public high school um, but it's better funded than most and has some great resources because of all the faculty families um, that send their kids there. Um, and so she sends probably about 10 to 15% of her kids um, to the states, to school in the states. The so top 10% or so can both afford it and get in. Like that's usually, she says, the, 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 the sort of the sweet spot. Um, so, which is exceptional, right, for a public school here on the island. Co college counseling is like the smallest part of her job description. Mm -hmm. So she is not officially a college counselor. This is just something that. She just personally has sort of gotten invested in and because of, you know, her kids has really sort of dug in um, and sort of figured this profession out for herself. Um, but she's one, for example, who is really well connected to guidance counselors all over. I mean, I feel like we have to kind of forget about the Department of Education at this moment in history um, and start developing like our own networks um, and, and start, you know, to connect her, you know, have her connect us to other folks on the island. We were thinking one of the things that we really wanted to invest in with Camp College in 2020, which in this moment is kind of up in the air, is really, again, foregoing the Department of Education and thinking about how we could do our own sort of counselor development and professional development um, for college counselors on the island. So 
building that network and helping schools kind of figure this out is, is definitely on our agenda, at least on my personal agenda. And even just talking out loud in this meeting, you know, you, you had the great idea about creating sort of a clearinghouse of this of PAA schools. Um, I think, you know, one of the things that we need to do to help facilitate this too is start to build sort of a more comprehensive list of contacts of folks who are responding to emails. You know, if, again, if this is, you know, just one of the bullet points in their job description, I totally get it. Why, I mean, I remember recruiting down here and you would, you would hear crickets, cookies, you know, you would email people. And if there weren't one of the 12 independent schools on the island, you might not hear anything, you know? And so um, I think it's incumbent on us um, who are here to, to kind of do some of this legwork and mm -hmm. start to yeah think about how we can we can help sort of open up up that that profession you yeah. know, on the island. Well, and it's something that you know we have been in conversation about, and that you know Celeste and I have been working to uh, establish um, is is a, a special interest group via NACAC yeah. relating specifically to um, these issues that are very unique in Puerto Rico, uh, related to college access. And I hope that we can get that going in a way that, uh, will provide, you know, further, uh, an expansion of that network of, uh, of professionals and of resources to help everybody do, uh, better work to recruit students from Puerto Rico and bring them to colleges in the mainland. If, if, if the students choose to do that, if that is what they want to do, that they will then have that option more than they do currently. Um, with just the the five minutes remaining that we have any other thoughts or recommendations that you guys would make to uh, colleagues anywhere listening to this who might be thinking about um, how best to serve the student population in Puerto Rico when it comes to college access look at look at our uh, spend some time studying our, our testing averages we're 51st okay give our kids an effing break if they have a 1450 okay <laughs> Like they, they really are like a fucking star on this island, you know, I, I, I am flabbergasted. I understand what's, you know, like I get, you know, context and everything, but I'm like in context, there's gotta be like a dozen kids like <laughs> north of 1500 in, in a senior class. So yeah, you know, you don't get take kids below 1500, but this is Puerto Rico, you know, like I, I, I would really encourage folks to spend some time kind of, yeah. I mean, and maybe this is a year I'm really optimistic with all of this garbage going down. Right. But that as a profession, we have to kind of reevaluate standardized testing, mm -hmm. um, you know, and this is going to be that's really going to force us to like push the issue. But particularly with kids down here, man, give, give them the benefit of the doubt, you know, um, outside of a handful of our, you know, our communities, our, our small, you know, the sliver, the margin where our kids are, are at. Um, most of our families, you know, the kid breaks a thousand and we're, you know, they're fucking star down here. So please give them a break. Yeah. I think I think there are two things. Give a charitable assumption when you're evaluating these applicants because not all applicants are created equal. We know that when we're reading applications. We get talked about unconscious bias a lot when we're reading applications. We talk about regional considerations. But you can't expect a kid from Iowa and a kid from Puerto Rico to have the same resources because they might both be equally underserved versus a kid from a more urban or dense population that has more access to, uh, I don't know, private tutors or more, more robust college application system. We really need to be sensitive to that. Uh, we need to be more open-minded to where our applicants are coming from, especially when we're evaluating them. And I think the last thing is be curious. Be curious about the population that you are recruiting to and serving and understanding. And this goes for not just Puerto Rico, I think for everyone. We need to understand this, these communities that as college representatives, uh, we go and recruit out to 
because the more we're curious and we learn about them, the better we're able to advocate for them on the college side, right? And we all have worked in the college admission side. We know how building a class works. And if we were curious, we were able to bring in some fantastic kids to the places that we worked at. Also, please, I know it's just symbolic, but giving us, sending us your international recruiter or sticking us in that international bucket is kind of a micro like <laughs> aggression or, or macro aggression. Um, nothing sets my kids' hackles up like for you know faster is when the, the international recruiter is the one who's, who's coming in. Not because like I get it from like an admissions perspective, but, but from like our perspective, um, it's a big fuck you um, to our status and who we are in the country. And when I have a rep come in and they don't know that my kids are a citizen, they don't know that my kids fill out FAFSA, then I mean that's even like more egregious, um, which happens. And that goes to the be curious part. Send your Spanish-speaking representative, right? Because that'll help have those conversations with mom and dad. We're doing it in the United States, right? If we have bilingual staff, you know, you send that bilingual staff to your different communities. You were doing it for your Asian community, for your Hispanic and Spanish-speaking communities, for your French communities. That bilingualism can work if you have people who speak all sorts of languages to answer phone calls or answer emails or go out recruiting. But like DJ said, we may be foreign, but we're in a domestic sense. Like I said at the beginning, we are U.S. citizens. We fill out the FAFSA. We fill out the CSS profile. We are as 100% American as everybody else. We're just a little bit different because we have a little bit more uh, sasson. We have a little bit more flavor. And if you understand that, then you'll have much more success recruiting because as DJ says, I see my kids' eyes roll back and I've been doing admissions for over 10 years the moment that they are put in the international student orientation and they're expected to connect with someone from another country whose walk of life has not been theirs. I mean, these kids in, in Puerto Rico grow up on watching TV in Spanish, but also watching TV in English. So more likely they were watching, uh, I don't know, The Sweet Life of Zach and Cody in two languages, right? That was their reality. They know who Cole Sprouse is because they identify with kids in Riverdale more than a telenovela like Elite, right? So maybe understand where they're coming from and, and don't don't push them aside and don't put them in a box where they don't necessarily belong. And also talk to your financial aid offices. I mean, that's something, um, you know, I was talking to Giselle at Emory about this and she wants sort of more information, you know, like she's like, can you get us an economist? And I was like, let me see, I don't know, but like helping your financial aid offices as they reevaluate um, financial aid packages, understand the real context um, I noticed the other day I was doing um, a filling out a, a fee waiver for an ACT for a student, right? And then I spent some time looking at sort of the federal like like poverty guidelines. And Alaska and Hawaii have sort of different standards than the, than the mainland because of the cost of living um, in the states, right? So those kids that 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 salary like gets bumped up. I I'm just curious, like my 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 question, my curiosity when I like saw that I was like, well then why you know. Does Puerto Rico get a special category? Can we get, can our kids and our families get some special dispensation understanding, you know, sort of the financial and economic realities? I don't know. I mean, now with COVID, I guess like it's the whole issue of financial realities, but, but I, you know, helping colleges understand, you know, that a family making $65,000 a year when a head of lettuce costs $6 at the supermarket, right? <laughs> um, does, you know, puts them in a different category than the family making $65,000, you know, in, in Miami. You know, like, right. I just... That right. sort of adjustment is something too that I'd like to figure out. And, and I'm excited. Thank you, Gavin, for organizing all of this and thinking mm -hmm. about how we can get a special interest group together, right? Because these are big questions yeah. um, that I think if we, you know, we, we sort of 
kind of gather our resources and our and our spheres of influence. Um, you know, hopefully we can we can address them. Amen. Um, I'm I'm so glad that you guys are are there and that you're doing the work that you're doing and that you're here with me uh, talking about this today and um, that we're able to have found each other uh, on this common cause and to continue to try to do this work uh, in some productive ways that uh, that really help kids that need help. So uh, I thank you guys so much again for for the talk and for all the hard work. Evan, thank you. You're like the David Begnaud of like, Rico Higher Ed, man. Oh my gosh. <laughs> but I'm glad to... You were curious. You were, curious, you were open-minded. You wanted to learn more, and you did. Like, well, that's, you know, yeah. I um, It helps that I needed to learn as much as I could uh, to sort of stay married to my wife hap- happily. So, <laughs> you know, yeah. yeah it was a, a powerful motivator. So, um, <laughs> thanks again, you guys. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much to these fantastic humans for their time and their work to get the word out there about what's going on in Puerto Rico. And of course, the patience as I figured out how to get this done between uh, homeschooling my kid and and doing my job and all kinds of other stuff. So, uh, yeah, that was awesome. I really appreciate them. Um, There's so much good work to do in Puerto Rico. So if you're a college rep and you want to go to Puerto Rico once your campus's travel ban is lifted, because who wouldn't? Why wouldn't you? What's wrong with you? right and you want to get plugged into some places and some individuals that might be a bit further off the beaten recruitment path there then take Celeste and DJ up on their offer to put you in touch with some of the individuals that you might not traditionally have thought to reach out to to go and meet some kids and uh, get dialed into some parts of the island that you wouldn't have spent some time in otherwise if you're a college or school counseling professional listening to this and you want to get involved in college access issues in Puerto Rico, Celeste and I have proposed and finally been approved to start a special interest group or SIG with NACAC. We think this group's needs are different from others that exist. And if you want to be a part of it, I've included a link to an interest form in the show notes, which you can fill out. You don't have to be a NACAC member to join up and to stay up to date. And if you're an enrollment professional, this form is helping us get started to collect and centralize uh, the data about colleges that accept the PAA in lieu of the SAT or the ACT for the purposes of admission, uh, if any of these tests survive the pandemic of course so go ahead and find that form and fill it out and uh, we'll stay in touch with you guys as best we can and as uh, this whole thing rolls out i've added a page on the website dedicated to all this stuff and you can go to crushpodcast.com slash puerto rico to see it all and to get yourself caught up on issues and of course if i'm missing anything please send it my way so that i can continue to build it out and uh i'll i'll keep adding uh, important uh, documents and links and resources and stuff there uh, as things change and as uh as needed so uh make sure you guys scope that out thank you all very very much for listening i hope that you are all safe and healthy and as sane as you possibly can be thanks to all of you people who are doing this work uh, to guide students as best you can from your remote positions. I know how hard it is, and uh, damn, I hope this is all over real friggin' soon. So uh, take good care of yourselves and each other during this 
batshit crazy time in our lives. Go for a walk. Turn off the tube. Uh, delete Facebook. Definitely. I don't know. I, I think that's probably not a bad idea. Just take these things off your phone anyways. Delete the apps. You don't need the apps. You can find it at any point, but you don't need to be, you don't need to be scrolling this stuff all the time, right? I don't know. Sorry. Didn't mean to get all preachy there at the end. Um, thank you guys, again, genuinely, for tuning in. I appreciate it. There's more uh, coming here, crush-wise, so please uh, stay tuned and uh, stay safe and uh, spread love. Thanks very much, everybody.